Welcome back to Star Trek and the Jews. I'm Josh. And I'm Chava. This is the podcast that uses Star Trek to explore the world of Jews and Judaism. Today, we have a really special episode, because even though it's Tu Bishvat, we are looking at Yom Kippur. Oh, now you're giving away when we're recording and when <laughs> we're presenting this, actually. We are looking at the Voyager episode, Day of Honor, and we're going to talk about the themes of Yom Kippur through this episode. Should we go over a few preliminary things? I think that's a good idea. Okay, here's a question I have. Star Trek has been around for 54-ish years. What are we going to do with You can't spoilers? say a specific number and... And then add ish. It's triple high. I guess we could kind of warn people before we say something very specific that is a serious plot point of the entire series. Yeah. When it comes to all of the series up to Discovery and Picard and the forthcoming sort of post-2018 Trek, everything before that is more or less fair game. And the only stuff we should really try to avoid is if there's like a huge twist or a character death. In those ones, we can kind of warn people. But by and large, if you haven't seen something that came out in the 1980s, don't fret too much about hearing something about it now because it's all, it's out in the culture anyway. Yeah, if you exist in the world and you look at the internet at any point, then you've probably seen a spoiler by mistake. Yeah, and then when it comes to the modern shows, I think we should give like a reasonable window a couple months after an episode is aired before we dive right into something. I know some people are waiting, for example, until the whole Picard series has aired so that they can watch the whole season and binge it, either because they prefer that way to watch it or maybe because they want to sign up for a free trial at CBS All Access. But there, you know, there's a lot of different perspectives on that. Well, we have Crave. But we, being Canadians, watch it on Crave. That's right. So if it's 90s Trek or original series or one of the Star Trek films, I, I think it's fair game to basically dive into anything and we'll we'll try to let you know if something big is going to come up. Personally, I can't believe that in the latest episode of Picard, Captain Janeway turned out to be a Bolian. That I don't think has happened. But if Captain <laughs> Janeway turns out to be a Bolian, I I will go back and edit this out. It's it seems very, very unlikely. She's definitely not blue. But you saw the episode. I've seen all the episodes, yes. But what if she's a Bolian in like episode four? You're right, you're right. Why are we talking about a season four Voyager episode and Yom Kippur? Well, it's one of the most important episodes for Bilana. Yeah. Big, big Bilana development it here. It is. It's a huge one. This is where Bilana and Tom finally get together. Yeah, spoiler. Mm-hmm. But you've seen it. But you've seen it. We're, we're hoping that as your Hebrew school homework, you have watched Day of Honor. And if not, you can uh, go ahead and pause it right now. Maybe I should give like a really quick summary of this episode. Yeah, definitely. What I like about this episode is that there are sort of three storylines, but they're really closely tied into each other. One storyline is that Belana is aware of the fact that this special day is the Klingon Day of Honor, a day where she's supposed to reflect on the past year and see how her actions live up to Klingon standards. And she's going through all kinds of struggles related to that. Seven of Nine, who's actually just joined the crew in this, and it's funny, she's a little bit off. Her affectation isn't quite Seven of Nine in this one yet. Yeah. It's a little sweeter and a little bit of this. <laughs> She's asked for a duty assignment. She's assigned to engineering and her and Belana are going to try out a new transwarp drive, a Borg technology to help Voyager get home faster. And Voyager has encountered a people called the Katari, who are a, a 
caravan of refugees whose homeworld was destroyed by the Borg and whose civilization was devastated, and they're asking Voyager for help. So all of these plot points converge. Seven and Belana's experiment goes wrong. They're forced to eject the warp core. Belana is already agitated because she's turning down Tom Paris's advances. She is struggling with what to do with this Klingon Day of Honor, and now she's had to eject the warp core. The Katari are asking Voyager for help, and Voyager is being quite generous with them, but they're very insistent and asking for more and more and genuinely in need. Eventually, the Katari try to set up this salvage operation to, to take Voyager's warp core, which would leave them totally stranded. Belana goes through with part of the Klingon Day of Honor rituals, but not quite all of them. And in order to end a standoff between Voyager and the Katari, Seven of Nine offers to develop a new technology for the Katari, or maybe giving them technology that they had previously had themselves. That, that the Borg acquired. That the Borg acquired to let them make their own fuel and restart their civilization and maybe find a home. As this last bit is going down with the standoff, Belana and Tom Paris are floating out in space with their air dwindling away. They have a real confrontation, but also a very intimate moment. And Belana ends the episode by telling Tom Paris that she loves him. Wow, Belana. This is the start of Tom and Belana, a relationship that continues all the way through the series and that in a lot of ways is like one of the main emotional arcs of Voyager. So what's Yom Kippur in all this? <laughs> so what is Yom Kippur at all? Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement for the Jews. It's the day that we are sealed into the Book of Life, or not, hopefully yes. We have these 10 days right before Yom Kippur to think about what we've done the year before. Jews often will mark this day, either by staying home from work or going to synagogue. Lots of secular Jews will celebrate this day, whether or not they uh, celebrate any other holidays throughout the year. And it's a fast day. So it's a day where we're supposed to reflect on ourselves. Some people will pray. Some people will just think about it to themselves. I think you could make a pretty good case that it's the most important Jewish holiday. I disagree with that. You but disagree okay. with that. Which do you think? Passover. Passover. Yeah, I, I get that. Pesach holds the story that is at the centerpiece of the Jewish narrative. It's our founding story. Yeah, I think what stands out about Yom Kippur is, you know, there are lots of days in the Jewish calendar that observant Jews see as giving them specific obligations. But on Yom Kippur, lots of people who, who don't do stuff the rest of the year do. Why do you think that is? I'm not really sure. I think we can poke apart that as we get into the episode because it seems kind of connected to what's going on with Belana here. Yeah, uh, I would agree. I would add to yours that it's not just thinking about our sins, but also repenting for them. That's true. And You're supposed to have done it by then. Yom Kippur is important because it's a day where Jews really think about, or like the Orthodox Jew identifies this day as the day that kind of gives you your last chance to be in God's good books. And I think that that is something that scares people into going. Can I push on something here? Yeah. Okay, sometimes you ascribe the word Orthodox to like like traditional rabbinic Judaism. And I don't know that that's totally authentic because I think that the liberal denominations that come out of the Haskalah, the, the Enlightenment, so Reform, Conservative, Reconstructionist, and others, they take on all of that legacy of what Orthodox retains, 
but view it through the lens of modernity. But I think that's very different. To an Orthodox Jew, the reality is truly that they feel, or not even that they feel, they believe that on Yom Kippur, their sins and their actions will be sealed into a decision by God whether or not that year is a reflection on them worth living, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, I think that because of that separation, whereas post-Enlightenment Jews would recognize it as an important part of their year and it's something that they're going to observe, but they don't truly believe that if they don't go to synagogue that day, anything bad will happen. Do the Orthodox? Yes. Yeah, that's a tricky one. I mean, I'm really hesitant to like speak for entire denominations, let alone denominations that I'm not a part of. Maybe we should like say what Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform are. Crazy, hazy, and lazy, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay, so Orthodox Jews, there are many different groups within Orthodoxy, but we're basically talking about Jews who resist modernity and apply traditional rabbinic Judaism and rabbinic Jewish law as binding on their life. Reform Judaism is a movement that comes out of the Enlightenment that no longer sees halakha, Jewish law, as binding necessarily on Jewish light, but that retains the tradition, culture, and heritage of Jews, as well as takes that entire rabbinic tradition, but only applies it when they see it as uh, fitting with modern values. Conservative Judaism began as an offshoot of Reform Judaism, and it's one that says we're not going to reject Jewish law altogether, but we're going to try to interpret Jewish law and apply it in the most modern way possible. The problem with those definitions is that they actually have nothing to do with like how day-to-day lives are lived. And in a lot of ways, they're more sociological identifiers. So many people think of themselves as Orthodox Jews because they go to an Orthodox synagogue, uh, because they're from an Orthodox family, part of a community that lives a particular way of life, rather than because of like particular ideological beliefs they have. I don't know. I think I disagree with that. I think, at least I think for, I do think that there are a few things that really are identifiers for an Orthodox Jew. And they, I think most of the time it does involve true belief in in Judaism. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. And certainly in the conservative Jewish world, I belong to a conservative synagogue and I think of myself as a conservative Jew. And other than like rabbis and teachers, I know hardly any conservative Jews who like actually believe in the thing that conservative Judaism stands for. I think most of us are, and certainly I am, a reformed Jew in my heart who likes to go to a conservative synagogue because I like traditional liturgy and ritual that are maintained much more in conservative synagogues than they are in reform ones. And also the lines between these movements have changed over time and also changed by region. And there are increasingly among people our age, and we're millennials, <laughs> don't align with denominations at all, but think of themselves as just Jewish or going their own way. There are a lot of secular Jews who attach the label reform to them as a way of saying I don't take it too seriously and that I think like really does a disservice to reform Judaism. Your partner, Dr. Adam, is a reformed Jew who takes his Jewishness very, very seriously. True, but he still eats shrimp. But he engages with the fact that it's traif when he eats it. No, he doesn't. (laughs) Star Trek and the Jews and And Adam. Adam. (laughs) Are we crazy for talking about Yom Kippur in this episode? 
absolutely not. So this episode was actually originally envisioned as a Yom Kippur episode. There were a series of books in the 1990s that all connected to this day of honor. Uh, the editor of the Star Trek pocketbooks at the time, a guy named John Ordover, explicitly thought of it as a Klingon Yom Kippur, a day where Klingons take measure of their honor for the past year and, and see how they, uh, they stand up to Klingon standards. It's funny that there's a Yom Kippur episode in Star Trek. Star Trek has not done a lot of holiday episodes. No, but I mean, this is the one day that matters to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you could argue that they've never even done a Christmas episode. The next gen episode, Tapestry, that's the one where, where Q takes Picard and it lets him see what his life would be like if he hadn't been stabbed to the heart and he ends up as this like very sad old lieutenant and that one you could argue is a christmas episode because it's paralleling dickens a christmas carol also star trek generations which also does dickens a little bit it came out around christmas and there's a christmas tree in picard's like weird nexus vision in a terrible scene that never made any sense to me anyway but that's neither here nor there this episode aired in elul what's elul 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 is the month leading up to Yom Kippur. Uh, Elul, the rabbinic tradition says, comes from Ani Ladodi Ladodi Li. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. But the rabbinic tradition is wrong. The name actually comes from a Babylonian month that we <laughs> took for ourselves. But it's also our tradition, so we embrace it nonetheless. Yes. And during this month, you're supposed to ask for forgiveness from your friends, your family, for all of the things that you may have done, your partner... Well, Yom Kippur, you're talking to God, but in general, your tshuva is like basically meaningless if you're not really talking to the person. What's tshuva? Tshuva is essentially righting your wrongs. It's a Jewish process where you are confronting your sins. You speak to the person that you may have wronged in that sin. Jews don't repent for sins by going and asking like some other authority for forgiveness. When the wrongdoings specifically negatively impact particular people, you have to ask those specific people for forgiveness. Yeah. And if you don't, then then nothing. We don't believe in hell. But then that, that sin stays on your record, basically. Yeah, it's a little fuzzy what really happens to you if you're, you know, not inscribed in the book of life. But we don't have to go too deep into that. Yeah, let's not. You know, since we're talking about a Klingon holiday being a stand-in for Yom Kippur, do you think that the Klingons are stand-ins for Jews? I actually don't, in general. I think Yom Kippur and the Day of Honor are super obviously the same, but in general, like, what do they have in common? The Klingon religion doesn't really resemble the Jewish religion. The Klingons have a religion around Kales, who's sort mm -hmm. of a Jesus-y figure, and that he's, like, their savior, and they're waiting for his return. They don't, like, strictly speaking, have a god or gods, and they say that they killed their gods. Um, but <laughs> But Kalis is like effectively their their divine entity that they worship. I think there's something to the otherness that certain Klingon characters like Worf and Balana experience. We see Worf have a bar mitzvah of sorts. We see some awkward rituals involving blades. <laughs> Eek. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that at some point we will have to examine the Klingons and their Jewishness as a whole, but there's like not nothing. It's not that they- I don't the, believe that there's nothing. I'm just like the, I feel like the main characteristics are yeah, different. They like, definitely did not sit down and write space Jews with them. <laughs> and I also think that like 
violence is kind of a pretty non-Jewish or un-Jewish thing. And they're a hunter culture. True, also pretty un-Jewish. Mm -hmm. The idea of dying a glorious death is totally alien to the to the Jewish tradition, I think. Yeah. Uh, we have death ritual, I guess. Right. Where we howl and stare into their eye. No, that's not what we do. That's what the Klingons do. But we do something. Uh, this, this merits further exploration, I think, in another episode. What are some similarities in the practice between Yom Kippur and the Day of Honor? I think the main one is probably reflection on your past year, seeing if you measure up to the community as a whole. Bailana wants to see if she's honorable. And that's pretty much what Yom Kippur is as well, is like looking at yourself and seeing if you've been honorable that year. And if not, then trying to fix that. Mm -hmm. It's not a fast day. She's eating like a special food for it. And the Klingons do fast at bachelor parties and some other situations. Yeah. I'm interested in the ways Belana, as a secular Klingon, engages with her tradition here. In this way, I think Belana represents a lot of Jews that we know and that we encounter. Her mother is Klingon, but her father isn't. She's not fully engaged, she doesn't buy in to all the Klingon stuff the way other Klingons do. You know, Worf constantly in Next Gen is trying to beat his chest and prove that he's the most Klingon of all the Klingons, probably because he, he isn't and he's ashamed of the fact that he was raised with humans and <laughs> is just cosplaying all that Klingon stuff anyway. But but Bellana, it's not that she hides from it, but she struggles with it. And there's a big part of her that just wants to be kind of a human like everyone else and there's actually like a really powerful episode in the seventh season where she she seriously contemplates rewriting her unborn daughter's genetic code to remove klingon dna from her that would uh no ridges remove the ridges right so that her daughter can pass Ooh, there's a lot there and yet on the day of honor it seems like belana feels a draw she does. And I, th I think that she feels like this is something that's maybe applicable to her, even if she doesn't buy into all of that. That the process of self-reflection yeah. is worthwhile. Yeah. And I think that's a, a something that a lot of Jews feel too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because what could go wrong there? Something I've seen recently, for example, is people connecting the high holidays with mindfulness. People who don't really view the high holidays as you know a religious obligation but they think it's worthwhile to adapt this tradition to reflect on their own lives and find a personal wellness in that yeah i think it's super important to do and so that's how it kind of ended up in our tradition neelix and paris are both engaging with Bellana in different ways in this episode so neelix goes up to Belana and he has, without asking her, prepared the traditional meal for the Day of Honor. And she says she's not that into it. She doesn't think she wants to do it. And Neelix says, okay, I think rituals are important, but like you do you. And he does something really special here, really kind, where he says like, you know, I can tell you're having a bad day. If you ever just need to talk or if you just want to like yell at me and vent, go right ahead. He just offers like support. He doesn't push it. Although he did kind of say like, I know you're a Klingon and you might need to yell. <laughs> he was basically saying that she's pent up angry because of her Klingonness. Uh, yes, it is rooted in a stereotype. <laughs> I, I will give you that. But yeah, that's true. So Paris, Paris takes a different tone. And, and the relationship between Paris and Belana at the beginning of this episode is like, 
they're not dating yet, but it, it's really clear leading into this episode that, like, something's gonna happen, I think. And she rebuffs his advances, but in a way that's like, we're buddy-buddy and I'm not quite ready for that next level yet, I think is sort of the tone of, of their relationship. And he pushes a little harder, like, he feels invested in her engaging with her Klingonness on the Day of Honor. What do you think of that? Personally, I've never had that kind of experience because I've always been pushed to do my Jewish stuff by my parents. And mm-hmm. like, I've always had that within me. I'm always like feeling guilty about not doing Jewish stuff. So personally, I haven't had that so much, but I do feel like it's such a valuable thing to have someone who is outside of it, who acknowledges that it's important, even if it's totally not related to them and kind of pushes that that could be important to you and it's okay that it's important to you even if you think it's silly maybe back in 2011 i was working on a federal political campaign chava and i are canadian that's probably worth repeating and the candidate that i was working for he was an incumbent he's sikh and every day his mom and the aunties uh, would make this huge indian meal for all of the volunteers and it was Passover. They knew it was Passover, and someone came up to me, a relative of the candidates, and asked me, like, is there a way that I can make this curry for you that is going to work with uh, with Passover? And, you know, there's some people who, depending on their kashrut observance, the answer to that would be no. But for me, it was amazing. It was like, ah, yes, if, if you could just, like, not make this with flour and not use this thing and this thing, that would be amazing. I would be able to eat this. And that was a moment where, like, I was, I think I was the only Jew who was in that campaign. And, and this was in, in Peel, a place that, that not a lot of Jews live, a, a suburb to the west of Toronto. It really made me feel included. I think that sometimes people are sense, so sensitive about differences that they wouldn't even try to like broach a matter like that because they might feel like, oh, well, if they don't keep kosher, I'll be offending them. But I was so glad in, in that moment that this woman just like tried to engage with with me on a cultural level, like no judgment, just offering to help. And I think that's sort of what Neelix does here. Uh, Tom. I thought more Neelix. <laughs> really? Well, because Neelix was judgment free. Tom pushes back and Tom can push back because he's from a position of closeness. Like he's seeing it on the inside and he knows the struggle that they've had. Like they mentioned that they they designed that holodeck program together. So he's invested his time in it. I don't really like how angry he gets about her backing out of it. I mean, yeah, but I think that's like probably more a sexist thing than anything to do with how he really feels about her day of honorness. You're someone who, in a period of your life, you reduced your own Jewish observances. Yes, that's true. And did you get pushback from from strangers? From strangers? From strangers, from non-strangers, from people in your life? I got huge pushback from my parents, definitely. Mm -hmm. I was a rebel child because I didn't keep Sabbath and other stuff. But I still kind of keep kosher, and I find that I sort of get pushback on that from secular people that I spend time with. They kind of find it funny to make fun of someone who decides that they're going to keep kosher. I don't know if I actually believe that kosher is important, but because I was raised that way, it's kind of just how I eat. I do find actually that I'm almost always super accommodated, and that in that neelixy way, I guess, and that's super nice. When Bellana is confronted on the holodeck about her conduct over the past year, she's sort of 
blows it off. Like, she's not so happy to like engage with that Klingon and actually describe her, her actions and see if they, they measure up to Klingon standards. And I kind of empathize with that. You have so much Jewish guilt. I know, but, but I feel like like I go to synagogue on Yom Kippur and I do all the shul things, but I don't, I can't honestly say that I really like go through my life and like try to identify the people that I've wronged and repent to them. That's true. I don't know if I usually actually repent to anyone. I do get a lot of messages about it, though. Like, you'll always get those messages. You always get them because you have lots of Orthodox family and friends. I get, like, three of those messages. Okay, I get, like, not that many Can you describe the message that you're talking about? Okay, the message I'm talking about is it's basically a mass message that is copy-pasted to every (laughs) single person that this person knows. So that you know it's sincere. So that you know it's truly sincere, and it's like can you please forgive me for everything that I may have done wrong to you this year? And also, Gemara <laughs> <laughs> Have a, have a... Have a, like... Good and... Good and seal yourself in the... Fast. Yeah. Seal yourself in the... Um, have a good ceiling. That's basically what it says. Right. And I always respond to it nicely. And I'm always like, yeah, you too. I hope that we can move past whatever that may have happened. But... Sometimes I actually, I have had ones where it was meaningful. Huh. Yeah, definitely. Like I have a couple friends that are, I mean, I have many friends that are religious. And if we had a falling out or something and it was addressed, that was nice. And it's like, it's kind of a point of the year where if you are feeling like you've had a serious falling out with someone, that's when you're going to address it. And so maybe you haven't had that. Yeah, I haven't. And I... I feel like I really should. It's funny that like I I take so seriously the fasting and the synagogue part, but actually digging into wrongs of the past and and trying to heal broken relationships is a lot harder to do than going through definitely the rituals and okay, I got to try this year. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely cried my way through Musaf. Whoa. Yeah. Do you always go to synagogue on Yom Kippur? Yes, unless I have a crazy migraine. Right. Oh, I also suffer from migraines. Yes. And I also get them when I fast sometimes, which has made Yom Kippur challenging. Yeah, Yom Kippur is often challenging. But usually the morning I can go. Like, Mm -hmm. I can handle that. Yeah. Chava. Yes. We need a little bit of instruction here. Oh, no. We should go to Reb Alert. (laughs) Okay, Reb Alert time. What is Reb Alert? Reb Alert is the time when we consult with a higher knowledge person. Reb means rabbi, but I think we're going to take a loose interpretation of rabbi to mean teacher, anyone who has something to teach us. It's going to be like maybe sometimes a more serious segment. I don't know. But we'll bring in a special guest for Reb Alert probably most episodes, maybe not every episode. Depends if we have enough things to say. Yeah, and <laughs> and uh, this episode, our guest once again is uh, Rabbi Steve Wernick of Bethsaida Congregation in Toronto. Delay that order, number one. Red alert. All right, we're at Reb Alert. Welcome back to the podcast, Rabbi Stephen Wernick. Thanks, Josh. It's good to be here. Today we are talking about Star Trek's only Yom Kippur episode, Day of Honor from Voyager, not to be confused with the horrifically racist next-gen episode, Code of Honor, completely different episode. We're looking at the themes that tie this episode to Yom Kippur, and I was hoping you could provide us with a, with a framework explaining 
the concept of vidui and teshuva as they relate to Yom Kippur. So first of all, Yom Kippur is the Jewish Day of Atonement. It's a day of reflection for the entire Jewish community as individuals and as a community against the values that we profess to be elements of living to our best selves. Uh, vidui is a, means confession. It comes from the Hebrew lehitvadeya, which has an essence of being naked in the, in the sense of that what confession is supposed to do, it's supposed to make ourselves vulnerable. When we come and reflect upon um, who we really are and the areas in which we have not uh, lived up to our best selves, that's a vulnerability. So vidui, uh, the, the notion of confession in Hebrew is about making yourself vulnerable. Teshuva is the way in which you respond to that vulnerability. It comes from the Hebrew word lashuv, which means to return. In Hebrew and Jewish language, we don't have a word for sin. So you have vidui, which is confession. You have chet, which, um, which means sin in the vernacular English. But the word chet comes from archery. It's missing the mark where the, the arrow flies. Once you release the arrow, it's going to land where it lands. And sometimes you miss the bullseye. And so that's one concept. The other concept of sin in Judaism is avera, which is about a transgression. As I turned left when I should have turned right, or I crossed this bridge when I should have waited a little bit longer and crossed another bridge. Both of those concepts have the notion of directional in it. And, and if you've turned the wrong way or you've missed the arrow, you can always correct your path or try again. And so tshuva is the notion of, of return, of changing the direction that you're going and returning to the values that you aspire to live by in order to become your best self. We see Seven of Nine who's confronted by Belana and asked if she feels remorse or guilt for the destruction of a people that they've encountered, the Qatari. And her answer is no, that, sh that she feels no remorse and no guilt. Certainly, we could make the case that an individual assimilated into the Borg collective has, has no personal responsibility for the actions of the collective. They're, you know, taken over, they lose all their agency, but they are part of a society that does wrong. And so how does Judaism and how does Yom Kippur think about wrongs that are committed not by the individual, but by the whole and by the community? Well, I think the point that you made about the episode is an important one. In the notion of the Borg, a person acts almost like a robot. Uh, and if there's no free will, then there can be no accountability because the person doesn't have a choice. From an ethical, moral perspective, if you don't have a choice, how can you be held accountable for whatever actions you make? What makes us human, of course, is that we do have a choice. We have choices as individuals in terms of the actions and behaviors and choices that we'll make. And we have a choice as a community as to which actions and behaviors we're going to allow and which we're going to keep in the margins and, or, or even punish um, when people transgress them. So the notion of Yom Kippur is specifically about the community. Individuals have to atone for themselves with other human beings. But the notion of Yom Kippur is that Yom Kippur only grants atonement for when people ask for forgiveness from God and demonstrate a willingness to not repeat those, those errors against God. And the community comes together, and the whole language of the, of the liturgy is in the plural. We have sinned. Forgive us for our sins. We have done this. We are mere mortal. We'll try to do better. So it's also, there's a public element of it where the, where the community puts peer pressure on people to, to, to reflect and to, to repent. 
uh, not only towards God, but towards each other. Communities that do that, communities that reflect, communities that hold the individuals as well as society accountable for its values and the implementation of those values are communities that tend to thrive. You know, that really is how honor, I think, is achieved. Throughout Voyager, Bellana not usually into all this Klingon stuff. She sees it as hateful, unnecessarily ritualistic, superstitious. Archaic. Archaic, yeah. But on the day of honor, she feels this draw in this building and in many synagogues. We have a room attached to the to the back of the sanctuary that opens up with a portable wall just so that when this building is full on the high holidays, uh, we can accommodate everyone. Why do you think Yom Kippur holds such a special place for, for so many Jews who otherwise may not engage in their Jewishness, but on Yom Kippur feel the need to? Uh, I think for part of it is is that like we all know that we're imperfect and to come together as a community and reflect on on our humanity and our frailty is a very powerful very powerful drive. I think it's also uh, a lot of its tradition, right? That's when their parents brought them. That's when their grandparents brought them. Families come together to be together. There there's something about the Kol Nidre prayer in particular that is haunting to many people, inspires them um, at that moment and hopefully throughout the year. So there is something really profound about Yom Kippur, about the community coming together, um, about the notion of uh, that we have the opportunity to uh, be better than we were the day in the year before. Um, that gives us hope. In this episode, we see Bilana struggling with two conflicting sources of shame. On the one hand, she feels ashamed of, like you said, archaic traditions. And yet she also feels ashamed of not participating in them in the way that was expected of her. Jewish guilt. <laughs> Religion in general always has to struggle to be relevant. There's something about... Uh, about an ancient ritual that is comforting in the sense of how long it's been around and how old it is and um, that it belongs to me as part of a particular people and so forth. But when the theology around that is, is archaic and it represents a value system that I can't reconcile with my life, then it just seems off-putting. It's like, why, why do this? So I think that the responsibility... Is a, is a relational responsibility. Religious institutions have a responsibility to constantly be reflecting and reinventing and making relevant the ancient traditions so that the values that are timeless can be experienced through um, ancient as well as new rituals that, are, um, that represent a value system that's relevant to, to the modern person. As modern people who... Um, are brought up in, in liberal educational um, settings of science and mathematics and history and so forth. You know, we have to recognize that as being truth as well. Religion is about moral truth, about ethical truth. It contains within it history and science as the ancients understood it and so forth and so on, but it's not a book about science or history. So when we confuse those things and we allow extremists in those views to take hold people who are 
otherwise secular, but and might be looking at religion. I mean, it all seems extreme. And if if that's what religion is, and I don't want anything to do with it. At the same time, you don't know what a religious tradition is about until you experiment it. So I would encourage people who might be seeking to come in. So um, is the Klingon Empire in need of a, a Haskalah? Yes. Yeah, I would say that that's exactly right. The Klingon Empire is in need of a Haskalah. It's in need of an enlightenment in terms of building size and, and so forth and so on. I think you're right. We've created these... Um, huge facilities that are designed for prayer but only get filled um, certain times of the year. Uh, I think we have to re reallocate our priorities that success of a community is more than just how many people show up to shul for prayer. It's how many people can you engage in meaningful Jewish experiences. Those experiences include prayer. They include Jewish learning. They include doing acts of social justice and chesed, kindness, creating caring communities. Uh, we have 150, 200 people come every week on Thursday, mostly older adults, to, to play canasta and mahjong and other games. Um, and they're not here. They're here for community. Um, and they're here because they want company, and it's, it's lonely. Uh, there's a lot of loneliness in the world. Um, and so we have to do those kinds of things as well and fill them with, with Jewish context and content uh, and uh, meet people where they are. And I think that's part and parcel of what we're doing at Bethsedic today, which makes it so exciting to be here. Reb Steve, thank you so much for your time, and uh, thank you for joining us once again at uh, Star Trek and the Jews. How can people find out more about, uh, about you and about Bethsedic? Well, they can visit us at our webpage, www.beth-tzedek.org, or you can reach me at rebsteve at beth-tzedek.org. Reb Steve, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. We are uh, in studio again with Chava and myself. That was Reb Alert. Hello, Josh. There were kind of two facets of this episode that were most Yom Kippur-y. <laughs> There's, of course, uh, Bilana struggling with what to do of her own day of honor. But I think if we look at Seven of Nine's storyline and um, the interactions she has both with the Qatari and other members of the crew with respect to the things like remorse and, and repentance of some form, there's a lot we can look at there too. What do you make of this? I actually think that she should repent a little bit. Because whether or not she was part of the hive mind, she still did things that warrant repenting. And I know that Reb Steve said that if you're not in control of yourself, but the hive mind, they are all thinking. So it's not like they're not doing anything. She's not making decisions, but as a drone in the collective, my sense is that, you know, there isn't a central authority of the collective. Uh, maybe the queen screws that up a little but when i think of the borg i think of like all the minds working together and the true horror of the borg is that all of these minds working together have decided to do evil and try to acquire more and so maybe even though she doesn't have personal responsibility she could be responsible in the same way that like an individual is responsible for the wrongs of like their 
culture, for example, because you or I can't go and impact the whole culture, but we do contribute to it in our own way and we're like a piece of it. Yeah, exactly. I see her as, while she is obviously not completely autonomous like any Borg is, she's involved and she's connected to them and Mm -hmm. her thoughts go into it too. She's asked explicitly if she feels remorse and if she feels shame and she says no, but the reason that she gives is not that she had no control over her actions, but that the Borg were in the right by trying to assimilate and destroy the Katari. We're at the very beginning of Seven of Nine's journey. I don't think a season five or a season six or a season seven, Seven of Nine gives that same kind of response. And I guess we'll see. I guess I think she does need to do Chuva. I think that she should at least be apologetic to the people that are actively angry with her about it. Mm-hmm. Even when she rescues the Katari by creating, what is it? It's a device for generating thorium isotopes. But that is her chuva, I think. Is part it, of it. Is it her chuva if she makes it right, but doesn't acknowledge any wrong on her part? But I think that part of it is that. Like, she was like, oh, they want me, so... You should just give me over to them and that'll save the crew. And then after that, she was like, well, there are some things that I could actually do maybe to help the situation for them. Right. So she has two separate pieces of trying to make things right. First is saying to the crew, I am willing to be your hostage. Hand me over to them because they're yeah. demanding me. And and that's like trying to make things right between her and the rest of Voyager. And then to the Katari themselves, well, I don't know. Is she trying to do right by Voyager by saving the Katari or trying to do right by the Katari? Maybe both. I think she's trying to fit in. And the reason maybe it feels incomplete is because quite appropriately, Seven of Nine is an incomplete person at this point in her personal journey. She's been in a Borg maturation chamber for much of her life and then a drone. And maybe it's been like a couple of weeks since Scorpion Part 2. It hasn't been that long. Definitely, yeah. To situate this in the rest of Voyager, Kess has just left the ship in the previous episode. And they need to replace her with another short, blonded person. Well, you know the story there, right? Well, isn't she, like, dead? Jennifer Leanne? No, she's alive, but she's she's having a rough go with things. Oh, no, I meant the character. The not character. The no, the character's not dead, and she comes back in an episode called Fury. But I thought she was, like, she was super aged. Like, they just age much in, faster. In Fury, yes. They almost wrote off Harry Kim. Yeah. And remember in Scorpion Part 1, Harry Kim gets like sprayed up the nose with some mm. 8472 oh, yeah. juice and starts turning into a tree. They were going to write Garrett Wong off the show. And over the summer, he was listed on People Magazine's 50 hottest whatever of, I want to say 1999, but I could be wrong. And that was enough for the the suits at Paramount or UPN to say like, ah, keep this guy. He's on the on the hot list. Get rid of the other one. I think a lot of the Voyager cast have spoken about how Jennifer Leanne being fired and Jerry Ryan being brought in was a very difficult adjustment for them. Both in the actual ship and in real life. Yes. We were talking about her chuva and whether mm-hmm. or not she did it for the Qatari or for Voyager. Mm-hmm. I do think either way, she's sort of becoming a person. Yeah. Do you think they complete that? Does she become an effective person in Voyager? Yeah. I'm not sure. I think they started on a journey with her and then they get to like season six and they kind of get comfortable. I don't know. I wish that by the end of Voyager, like they'd taken that, 
the metal off her face and she's wearing a uniform and she's living in an apartment instead of the cargo bay. Why do they make Seven of Nine live in the cargo bay? Because she sleeps in that thing. They can't put that in quarters? I guess, but she can't have, it's like, what she's used to. They're trying to make her feel drapes. at home. The doctor also really should have quarters. I think he brings it up and they, like, laugh him off. But he's not real. He's really a okay, doctor. Okay, he's real, but he's not... He can also just disappear into the computer. Uh-huh. I mean, couldn't you with, like, a cortical stimulator or whatever? Or some tech-to-tech? No. No? No. There's no way to put human consciousness into a machine like was done in the original series episode Spock's Brain in Season 3? Not yet. Not yet. But in Star Trek, it's possible. Yes. To put his brain, it's gone. Um, the Qatari, they are offered some charity, but it's not enough. Yeah. What do you make of that? They're greedy. Are they greedy? I don't know. They're dying. They're dying, but at the same time... There's like a way to deal with that, and they sort of threaten Voyager with no warp core a little too much. We've been strangers in a strange land. And the Qatari say, you know, it's not just that their homeworld was destroyed by the Borg, it's also that no country, no planet will take them. And that, that hits me really hard. Yeah. I mean... That they, they feel like they have nothing to offer, and therefore they're stranded. You see them as the Jews. I see them as the stateless people of the modern world. And in World War II and the period right after that, that means the Jews. This brings us to an interesting question of, like, can every refugee story be a stand-in for the Jews? Not quite, but it definitely made me think of my stateless relatives writing letters from dp camps to my great-grandparents saying send us cash sewn into the sleeves of shirts so that the officials here won't take it i went back to my house in poland and there is a christian family living in my house please don't forget me and send me papers so i can get the hell out of here yeah that's true i guess the qatari do have that aspect about them now the qatari cross a line i think it's perfectly fair game when they're when they're sitting in like the the somewhat decadent conference room saying really you're just giving us a few hundred kilos of food you literally have a machine that can make it out of nothing where they cross the line is when they try to take the the warp core why didn't they just give them a replicator good question prime directive seriously (sighs) i guess yeah yeah that certainly would help them. I guess they would still need a power source, and the problem is they don't have a power source without right. their, their thorium thingamajig. True. Don't sure they violate the Prime Directive anyway by doing that? The Prime Directive is usually only ever brought up in the context of it being broken. <laughs> we don't really know the full extent of like the jurisprudence of the Prime Directive. Looking at Voyager, my take is that they're comfortable sharing technologies that are not weapons if they're not going to like seriously disrupt the level of advancement of the species. Yeah. So like giving the Kazon a replicator would have fundamentally changed the balance of power in the region and, you know, their war with the Trabe and all those sorts of things. But, you know, they don't have problem giving engine upgrades to a a ship who's going to help them repair their shields or something like that. It's a fuzzy line. One day we're going to have to talk about the Prime Directive and whether or not it is in and of itself ethical. I think the purpose that the Prime Directive serves in Star Trek is to say that these are people who live by a code 
and what happens when we encounter a situation that challenges the ethics that we have committed to live by. And there's definitely something Jewish in that. Yes, that's definitely true. Is Seven of Nines Teshuva complete when she makes whole? Well, she doesn't make whole. Is Seven of Nines Teshuva complete when she's done everything she can do to better the situation of the Qatari? Or is it incomplete because she's refused to take any responsibility for what's happened to them? I definitely think it would be incomplete, but I do think that she's in the process of it. Like mm-hmm. she's working on herself and she's reflecting on what's happened. Yeah. But it would be incomplete because the whole part of Chuva is that you're really thinking about what you've done wrong. Chava, I think what we should do now that we are approaching the end of our episode is try to find the Afikomen. Okay. Okay, what's the Afikomen? The Afikomen is essentially the little piece of matzah that is broken off from the bigger piece of matzah on Passover at the Seder, and it's hidden, and the children are supposed to go find it. Does Afikomen mean dessert? Doesn't it come from Greek? The afikomen is the last thing eaten at the Seder, even though in my family we have the afikomen and, and then have regular dessert. Because it tastes gross. Because it tastes gross, and who wants matzah for dessert? Um, it's like a little piece that is hidden away, and it's the very last thing you have before you close the Seder. So for our show, the afikomen is going to be some little Jewish thing we found in the episode that we will close with. Okay, so Josh, have you found an afikomen in this episode? I think I found the afikomen in this episode. We're going deep here. Okay. So in the Talmud, the Talmud is the redaction of the Jewish oral tradition. In the Talmud, in Mishnah Tanit 4, oh my God. Uh, section 1, <laughs> Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, I'm reading from Safaria, which is the best website in the world. It's like the memory alpha of Jewish texts. He says that there are no days of joy in Israel greater than the 15th and Av and Yom Kippur. Why Yom Kippur? That on these two days, one of them being Yom Kippur, the daughters of Jerusalem would go out in borrowed white linens. They would borrow them so that they wouldn't shame anyone else rather than using their own. Uh, They would go and dance in the vineyards and try to find husbands and find love. This episode ends with Alana draped in white, floating in space, almost dancing, you know, gracefully in this weightless environment. And she finds her future husband and she finds love. And the white spacesuit that she's wearing is a borrowed garment because of course these spacesuits are way too fancy to make on a TV show budget. They borrowed them from the set of Star Trek First Contact. Feature film, better budget. It's from, you know, that scene where Worf goes, assimilate this, pew, pew, pew. Yes, I do actually. Yeah, that's where the spacesuits are from. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Chava. Yes. Did you find an Afikoman in this episode? Kind of. Okay, let's hear it. Okay, Neelix is your bubby. I love it. Your bubby that makes you something delicious, like matzo ball soup. Or Klingon blood something, pie. Yeah, definitely the same thing. (laughs) Blood pie, babka, totally the same. And wants you to come back and do something Jewish with her. And I kind of think that Neelix sort of fills that role in this episode. Wonderful. 
That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you once again for joining us on Star Trek and the Jews. Big thank you to Rabbi Steve Warnick of Beth Zeta, Congregation of Toronto, our guest once again on Rev Alert. Thank you to Dr. Adam Snyderman, composer of our opening fanfare. Our closing music is Desert of the Lost Souls by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons 3.0. Your Hebrew school homework for next week is to watch the Next Generation finale, All Good Things. We will see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.